Hello, this is Kevin Smith from the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. If you love all things gardening, join us at BBC Gardener's World Live from the 13th to the 16th of June at Birmingham's NEC. Find out more at bbcgardenersworldlive.com. See you there. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Are you ready for heart-stopping, toe-tingling, coma-inducing levels of drama and romance? Okay, great. Well, you can find it all included with Prime Video. Check out Expat starring Nicole Kidman, The Idea of You starring Anne Hathaway, and the history-bending romanticy My Lady Jane, which will leave you speechless forever. Or till the end of the episode. Find your happy place. Prime Video. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. What's the secret to making a beautiful garden? How do you turn the patch at your back door into a space that's not just a collection of plants, but one that suits your personality and makes you happy? Hello, I'm Lucy, and today I'm exploring the idea of how to turn your dream garden into reality with a man who's made more gardens than most, from his time as presenter of Gardener's World and of Ground Force and Love Your Garden. It is, of course, Alan Titchmarsh. In his highly personal take on making a garden, he reveals the key steps he always takes when creating one, how to know when it's time for change, and the mistakes he's made along the way. But first, I asked him to share with us, what does a dream garden mean to him? Well, the dream is is an escape, but it's an escape, in the case of the garden, to reality, because it's your only chance, I think, to make make a dream come true, to make your dream. I mean, gardens, particularly during the, the past few months, have been our most people's salvation, really. They've been a chance to reconnect with nature, to get in touch, to shed the worries of the world. Gardening has always been like that for me. It's always been um, a kind of... Um, Solace, um, a secret haven, really, which makes it sound as though I've been either very unhappy in life or I don't like reality. It's not that. It's just that particularly today, with the pace of life being so rapid, you're given a chance if and nobody likes every single thing about their daily life. There are bits in it that are obviously more unpleasant and some that are more pleasant than others. But you get a chance with a little bit of earth around your garden, which seems such a simple thing, 
so simple that many people don't even realise it's a possibility, you get a chance to make, if not perfection, then your idea of a little bit of heaven. Now, things go wrong with it, and it doesn't always grow the way you want it to grow, and pests and diseases come, all that. But you've got to park that, because look upon any little square of earth as a chance to make magic, to make a dream. Uh, And that dream is your own individual idea of a little perfect world, a world uh, in which to uh, escape the greater worries um, and to surround yourself with beauty, with calming influences, with features and things that give you spiritual uplift. It's the most underrated occupation not you don't necessarily get paid for this occupation, but think to occupy yourself with in the world. You, with the help of nature, playing a large hand, are in charge. You can make whatever you want and it will grow. It's not just like painting a picture, which stays, or furnishing a room, which stays. It's a living, breathing, moving thing. And in that respect, you are allowed to dabble in dreams. And I really do believe gardens are dreams. I came home from a month away um, two days ago. So I hadn't been in my garden this side of the water. I've got a little garden on the Isle of Wight. We've been there for a month for holiday. And I came back. I broke my ankle when I was over there. <laughs> so it was, slightly, <laughs> it was slightly longer than was intended. I was there a few more days than I should. And I came back. And maybe it was because I was frustrated, um, you know, all those things. But I'd been away from my garden for a month and I came. The sun was shining when I came home. And I went round the garden on crutches, right the way around four acres, because I thought, I'm doing this. I'm going. I'm going to do it. And I did. I looked at the end of the day and I'd done nearly 3,000 steps on crutches, which must count for an awful lot more when you've got two feet. And I ended up in a, on a bench in a corner in the sunshine. And I felt quite emotional because I realised I'd come back to my main dream. And I also realised, and I said out loud to myself, sitting on this bench in the evening sun, gosh, did you do the right job for a living? Or did you do the right job? And I always wanted to do it from being about nine or ten. And, I, you know, as you know, I became an apprentice at 15 and started gardening for a living. And it has just got better. And it's because I get a chance to live the dream. And that's what it is. Having made the dream, I can live in it. And it's, it is it is an escape, but it's real. So it's not as if you're um, doing something which is out of the real world and, and into a pretend one, which is actually make-believe it's not there. There's nothing more real than this little world I inhabit in my garden. And the fact that I've been able to make it with a dirty great began from nature is such a delight. Amazing. To have, to have not only the most amazing clock collection, but also... <laughs> just... <laughs> You're going to be on a winding day on a Sunday. Oh. <laughs> it's about 26. Anyway, go on. Wow, wow. You don't all chime. Well, that's a blessing. <laughs> there we are. Sorry. Normally I have them well synchronised. They're not normally this far apart, but I've been away for a couple of weeks. You've been away, you can tell. You've been just brilliant. But um, just, yeah. just Sorry, back to the side. No, no, it's, it, yeah. actually, it's lovely because this is, this, is, this is home. This is real, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. what these podcasts are all about. It's, it's, we're coming into your home. So fair enough. Your home is coming to us. We love it. So was the, the, the dream is very 
it's a big picture dream, isn't it? Um, but at what point did you sort of start to form the idea of, you know, how that dream really dictates how you mark out the ground, how you how you do make some of those memories come to life? You know, what is it? I think what you've is got it, what, to... Having established the idea, where do you go next? I think you've got to be patient at the beginning. Gardeners are by their very nature patient, but I think when they're making a garden, they tend to rush at it. I've got to get this sorted. I want to do it. I want to make it beautiful, blah, 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 all those things. So you, you tend to go at it like a bullet to gate. And it's quite difficult to get yourself to slow down and watch the, the really obvious things that you know you need to know. You need to know the path of the sun. You need to know where it is in the morning. And of course, it's going to be different. It's going to be lower in winter than it is in summer. You don't want to know where it's starts and where it stops. You want to work out which parts of your garden are in shade, which are in full sun. You need to know what the soil's like. Is it too heavy and it's going to need a lot of organic matter to lighten it up? Is it too sandy and light? It's going to need a lot of organic matter to get it to hold on to moisture. So you've got to do all the box ticking first and all the logistics to work out the Im immutables, you know, the ones that are not going to change. And try and work with them. And when you've done all that and you've looked at where the big trees are casting shade and things, then it's the old thing, making the list of what you want in that garden and, you know, the greenhouse, the shed, the compost heap, the flower border, whatever, the pond. Um, and then you've got to decide where they're going to go and you'll find that some of them you can't fit in. So this whole logistical exercise, which is really quite basic and, and sometimes frustrating because you're not onto the, the esoteric spiritual bit yet, you're still very pragmatic, but it's got to be done, not only to save you time later on when you put something in the wrong place and it dies, but also money. So you've got to do that. But that said, I've never been a really pronounced paper planner because paper is paper and it's flat and it's two-dimensional and, and out there it's three-dimensional and I like to plan my garden as I call it on the sod uh, actually out there on the ground and stick bamboo canes in for where a tree might go and mark things out with um, lumps of pieces of string or those lovely builders markers and look from all kinds of places and look from the bedroom windows and the house windows to see what you will see, to see what views will be enhanced and what views will be ruined if you put something there. And it, this makes it sound hugely complicated. It, it isn't really because, you know, you can write this list down of what you need to do and just work your way through it because it's so obvious. But if you go at it like a bullet again, oh, I'm having a pond, and you go out with your spade and you dig it, and well, it'll be where you wanted something else, really, won't it? So it does make sense to plan, but I don't want to sort of overface people with saying, if you can't plan, you can't have a garden. The most important thing is to create somewhere that you enjoy being. And I always think that about gardens, for instance, at Chelsea Flower Show. A lot of them are very nice to look at, the ones that I feel are the best gardens are the ones I want to go in and be surrounded by. And that's what a garden is, so three-dimensional that it envelops you. You're not just looking at height, depth, width. You're, you're being surrounded and kind of cuddled by a garden, I suppose. I do like sharp things in a garden. I like good line. I like borders and beds and um, certain areas to, to, to have a degree of sharpness about them. But within that sharpness, I quite like billowing and bountifulness. And I also learned, and I learned coming here when we came to this house, um, which is the one I did immediately after I'd done Gardener's World at Bollywood. Um, it's an old 
sort of four-square Georgian farmhouse. It looks like a doll's house. It's mellow brick. And it sits in the middle of its plot with a, a bit of meadow behind it, which I, I extended. I managed to buy a bit of farmland. So ostensibly, it's in the middle of its garden. Um, and I, I did a terrace that w- on the sunny side so we could sit in the sun, uh, and then a, a lawn, and then I did curving borders. And... That's it. Something wasn't working. I don't know why. I've done lovely lines, nothing too fussy, just arches. And, of course, if you just remember that there aren't many rules in gardening, but some that are worth in garden design, some that are really worth remembering, and that is off the house, off an angular house, angles work better than curves. Uh, and I've got this curved board, and it just doesn't looking right, so I thought, hang on a minute, I've got a, a, a terrace here, which is rectangular, I've got a rectangular border. I've got a, a lawn, which is flat on one side, but then I've got a big curve at the other. I'm getting into my sinuous curves too early. I made the other side of the lawn angular, and it then complemented the house. And behind that border, I then put the curves. You see what I mean? So that you start always, I think, I like a garden to reflect the angles of a house, but then to fray into, uh, this sounds grand because it's like a big garden to fray into the countryside. I mean, if you're in the semi and there's another garden at the end of yours, it's different. It still works on that smaller scale. Do the hard lines next to the house and then gradually get more uh, loose, more frayed, more uh, less symmetrical and, and, and more relaxed as you get further away from the house. And suddenly it, it all comes together. Oh, why didn't I do that before? I should know. <laughs> and I didn't. <laughs> I mean, this obviously is, you know, your, your kind of biggest garden to date. You've, you've had small gardens. So, and, you know, week in, week out on um, Ground Force uh, and on Love Your Garden, you're making small gardens as well as big gardens, mm. you know. So where do you get the most pleasure you know because a small garden is arguably harder than a than a big garden isn't it oh it's no it's it's not easier to paint a portrait miniature than it is to paint a large three foot by four foot canvas of a portrait it's equally complicated but the same rules if there are rules i hate using the word rules but the same guidelines apply it just shrinks it's like the balloon which has got print on it and when you let the balloon down the print's still there but it's that much more intense and that's just what it is in a small garden you're working on the same principles and again these hard line bits work you'll get into the curves quicker in a smaller garden than you will in in stately acres um but the rules are the same the delight and the pleasure in creating a new garden is not in any way uh, equated to, the, to its size it's the challenge that the particular piece of ground offers and ground force and love your garden now they are very challenging a lot of you know whether it's just concrete that has to be got up or or a slope or intransigent soil and intractable soil horrible stuff um there's always a challenge nobody has the perfect spot and the perfect soil but it's a challenge. But plants want to grow, is my line. It's up to us not to get in the way and just to try and make it a bit easier for them. So the challenge is always there, whatever it is. And there's always that head-scratching moment. Oh, you look at it. Oh, mithering, we call it up north. Well, you need to mither. And I do it all the time. Whenever I'm tackling a garden for either myself or other people, it's going, oh, you get a bit wormy. Oh, I don't know. And you have to keep saying to yourself, if it doesn't work, you can change it. If you put something in and it's not happy or it doesn't look right there, you can move it. We tend to get into this mindset of, oh, my God, it's going to go wrong. Uh, 
calm down, dear. It's only a garden. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, this garden must have been a liberation because you had years of filming in front of the cameras, making Gardener's World. The, The nation was landing at your doorstep every Friday and you had to entertain them. You had to do things. So it wasn't as if oh, well, I'll think about this for a little bit longer. You had to. And you had a whole lot of boots arriving on your doorstep. So, you know, (laughs) talk us through that one and what you were thinking when you moved to the new place. It must have been, well, you tell me, liberating or or otherwise. It was was liberating for the plants because they could only be planted once and they could stay. When I was doing Gardens World, you're planting them three times, once on a wide shot, once on a mid shot, once in close, and the poor things were dizzy by the time they'd finished. Um, So, yes, um, it was liberation. And the camera crew, I'd been filming in my garden, not just for Gardens World, but for Breakfast Time and and other programmes before that. So we'd filmed in my garden, uh, two gardens, a very tiny one. Our first garden when we got married was 40 feet by 10, so 5.15, so tiny patch we'd filmed in there for breakfast time and nationwide. Uh, then we filmed at, at Barleywood for Gardener's World. And I was given a little sign when we left Barleywood by the producer, Colette Foster. Well, my wife was given the sign and the sign said, no admittance to film crews. Uh, and until this year, la- last year, we, we hadn't had a film crew in the garden. For, to celebrate my um, 70th birthday, ITV very sweetly said, look, we like to do a programme about it. Could we film in your garden? And then you at Garden as well said, well, if they are, can we? Well, come on. I'd be churlish to say no. And Jonathan Buckley had photographed it because I'd agree with my wife that I could have photographs taken and do a book about the new garden. But it was a, it, it is a relief, really. But the thing is, you miss sharing it. The pressure isn't there to do things quite as rapidly. And what had happened by the time I got to my, the end of my um, six-year stint on Gardener's World, um, they the other presenters occasionally came to my garden and then the controller of the channel decided she liked that so much they came every week and that meant that my garden was not only my garden it was being gardened by other people as well, whom I'm very fond of you know Joe Swift, Chris Beardshaw, Pippa Greenwood would all come and do something in a corner well that meant I had to have a piece of ground ready for them to do their creativity in as well and it became really quite difficult and I thought you know, let's just have a, a break you know but that said, I do miss sharing it. Um, and so it's been lovely to do it through the book, through My Secret Garden, through pieces I write for you at Gardener's World. Uh, but yeah, the, um, the, but I still garden every bit as much as I did because that was another reason for doing the book and for letting the cameras in. Because people would say, I don't suppose you bother now, do you? Now, now that the cameras don't come anymore. I'm a gardener. I can't not, you know, it's what I do of choice. It's why I never go to football matches on a Saturday, because I'm gardening. (laughs) Yeah, I know, it's it's that whole busman's holiday thing. What do you do at the weekend? Well, of course I go out and garden. I mean... I do, um, and in all weathers. um, I mean, if it's absolutely persisting down now, I'll I'll stay in and write a column. (laughs) Of course I do. But when the sun is shining, it's shining now. I'm looking out of my, my window at the sun shining on, on my wildlife pond and water lily pads and, and irises coming up. Now, and don't look at it, Alan. It'll be there when you've finished. It's okay. You know, I have to be out. I mean, and it's such a delight. And as I say, you know, when I sit on that bench in the corner in the sunshine, I do, it sounds very twee and Pollyanna-ish playing the glad game, Um but I know that I'm in the right line. I've been allowed to do lots of other things as well, you know, music, Classic FM, the proms, chat shows, interviewing, which I love. I'm 
nosy parker really just interested in people but at the heart of it is a gardener who gardens and that would be the last thing to go when i can't lift a spade you know yes you'll be you'll be under it <laughs> i'll be under i'm happy to contribute <laughs> <laughs> you know there's there's thinking about design and thinking about what you were saying earlier about the dream and the space designers often talk about this spirit of the place you know, mm. making the garden that's not only right for you, but right for where you are. I think that's quite a hard concept for many people to to grasp. So so tell us, how did you go about finding that? And, you know, where, where do you look? How do you get to that notion of, of, of the right garden in the right place? Well, I suppose it boils down in the end to experience. But it's there's a degree of subjectivity in the, you know, the genius of the place. It's it's not often, not always, painfully obvious what you should do, but you need to make something around a house that, for you, is comfortable with that house. For you. I remember once having a, a real argument with Germaine Greer, who was telling me that French marigolds were naff. And I said, well, who says? She said, well, they are, they just are. And I said, well, we'll just analyse that. When they were born, <laughs> French marigolds, they're bright. They, I have two large tubs of French marigolds outside where I'm sitting now, uh, which Alice said, oh, you know, plant those. I said, they're jolly bright flowers. They've been stonking all the way through the summer. What makes that? Well, fashion, yes. But that's not objective. That's subjective. Uh, and so that boils down in the end to doing something which doesn't jar with the house and I guess here in a way we're talking about houses that are good looking to start with you know behind the, the a row of terrace houses or a, there are very handsome terrace houses but it's it's a stone or a brick wall isn't it that you're actually gardening from there so the genius of the place really only starts to come in when you've got a house of a particular style which perhaps stands on its own all that kind of thing it's rather pompous to say when you're living in as most of us do I'm mean, very lucky all right I'm in a Georgian house sitting in a bit of ground so that as a of place, but most people don't. And you can't say to them, now you need to study the gene. Oh, give over. <laughs> it needs to sit comfortably with the house, either to contrast with it or to complement it in some way. Um, and if it's a thatched cottage, of course, everybody wants to do hollyhocks and antirhinums and, and quite because it because it, it feels right. But again, don't be browbeaten into thinking you've got to do it one way if it really appeals to you to go contrary and do it the other way that great gardener christopher lloyd was absolutely slated when he dug up his sunken rose garden and made it into an exotic tropical garden it pleased him and he started a trend for tropical gardens he got dahlias back into fashion when everybody thought they were now uh, for christo was a friend i knew him well and unfortunately um he didn't have a big go on french marigolds before he died which if he had done this we'd been okay with them as well so don't be too bowed down by other people's taste. Try and find your own and be brave enough to try it. And if it appeals to you and it's not offending anybody else, <laughs> go for it. And actually, in many ways, um, you know, a smaller garden, maybe attached to a, a, a contemporary house or, a, a, you know, a modern house, the expectations are less. It's absolutely about freedom then, isn't it? There's, there are fewer expectations than if you did live in, a, you know, an old historic house. Yeah, but you look at grand designs. I look at grand designs. I love grand designs. I get very impatient for the reveal at the end. And inevitably, absolutely 
totally and completely horrified by the two blue glazed ceramic pots with clipped orbs of olive trees outside the front door. It's the only thing they've ever done. And it's horrendous. And their imagination stops at the doormat when it comes to outside. They've done this astonishing house. And why people can't equate. And you could say, oh, well, they'd run out of money. If they run out of money, don't put anything there. <laughs> don't mess up your glorious design with. I say this, I have two lollipops of box outside the back door of our farmhouse, okay? So they're there. But it's when you start uh, people's tasting gardens, is good clean lines, clean limbed gardens I like. They can be as simple as you like. Of, but if they're messy, I suppose that's when I start to think, oh, it's just a mess, you know. So here are I saying, do what you want, and then slagging you off for doing it. You know? is, that, is, that, is that the boy from the parks department talking there? Um, I don't know. that. I, I know there's a lot of uh, the Parks Department ingrained in me. I do yeah. like striped lawns. <laughs> I still like striped lawns. <laughs> guilty pleasure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, not so guilty. No, not at all. I mean, it's it's sleek, it's clean. And I'll keep working on them to see if I can get them back in fashion. <laughs> <laughs> you talked there about, about Christo. You, so you talked there about Christo. And um, what about your other influences? And, and you know, how did he and, and who else influenced you? And what sort of things did you draw from, from others that you fed into your new garden? If you ask, uh, I read columns in magazines written by... Um, professional horticulturists and gardeners now and there are who have been their greatest influences and of course they're quite you know Christopher Lloyd Beth Chateau both of whom great influences on me but also Percy Thrower was a great influence on me I watched Percy Thrower who then did Gardening Club and then the first presenter of Gardener's World when I was in single figures um the the foreman Ken Wilson at the Parks Department was inspiring to me while I was there and there have been lots of people along the way it's very tempting to choose very sort of um highly regarded men tours as people who've pointed you the way you know and Beth and Christo did but later in life you know when I was already well on the way and they were both friends and I loved them to bits and they were very I could never understand why they had any truck with me it was only a lad from a parks department who was actually a very keen gardener and a bit of a plantsman because you know, I trained at Kew so I know me plants but I just enjoyed their company and I and anybody there was a lady who lived locally here uh, in Hampshire called Mrs Pumphrey funnily enough Dan Pearson trained in her garden uh, and gardened with her and she was just a lovely local lady who had a feel for plants. And people like that help you along the way. And in doing what I've done, particularly with broadcasting and going round gardens over the last, gosh, 40 years for television, I love any keen amateur who's, come and look at this, you know. They're the salt of the earth and they, they're the fuel for gardening. You don't need to be anybody posh or a big name in horticulture to influence other gardeners. Grandfathers do. My granddad was the first man who took me out into on an allotment and I treasure a little picture I've got of me with him being led up to the rows of his sweet peas. Um, and that's it. And I think it's, it's implicit in all of us to pass it on. Alan Bennett's play The History Boys, there's a lovely line at the end, um, it's talking about education really in the history boys. Um, and Hector sort of comes back from the dead to sort of talk to his pupils. Um, and Hector says, Alan Bennett's words, you know, pass the parcel. That's sometimes all you can do. Pass it on, not for me, not for you, but for someone someday, somewhere. 
pass it on, boys. That's what you must do. And I think that's the way I feel about government. And I don't mind that people think I'm a populist, because I am, but I can still say clematis, viticella, papuria, plena, elegans, and know what I'm talking about. But I want everybody to get that raw pleasure that I get from gardening without making it too intellectual. You know, what, what do you think is the legacy of, of, of all the programmes that you've made? Well, I hope it's just stopped people being frightened of it. Because I think gardening has a great magic. It doesn't need to have a mystery. Uh, I try and wipe away the mystery and retain the magic. And the dreams, going back to what we were saying at the beginning, it's all about dreaming. But I'm desperate for other people who don't necessarily, or are frightened of it, because they look, oh, I don't, I don't know what to do. You know, I look at it and think, oh, gosh, um, well, where do I start? And my job is to take them by the hand and say, there, there, come along, have a look, and then hand them on to other people when they've made those initial strides. I make no apology for being a populist, because a populist's job, is to, or populist aim, is just to try and spread the word. Uh, and it's a magical world, the world of a garden. It is that world of dreams and nature. It's the sharp end of conservation and environment. And you can load all these things onto it if you want to make it really heavy and really um, a responsible thing to do, which it is. But you can also say, just look at the joy I get from this. Do you want a bit of it? This is this is how you and I just try and open people's eyes without being pretentious or pompous or and I I know I got it in and I still do get it in the neck for being a populist. I remember a, a lovely alpinist. I won't give her name because she was she was a great friend, but she was one of the country's best alpine growers. And I used to be on the Rock and Alpine Group Committee of the RHS, and she came up to it one Chelsea Flower Show when Ground Force had started, and she said, "Mr. Titchmarsh, what have you done?" And I thought, well, what I've done is is shown people what you can do in a little patch of ground. Um, all the work that I've done within it has been properly done. The ground's been dug properly. Things are very properly planted. It's not the gardening equivalent of the staple gun-making furniture approach. It's not like that. Everything is done properly. And my analogy, which is really rather trite and not terribly appropriate, but if you adopt a child rather than give birth to it, do you love it any the less? And the answer is no, of course you don't. It's the same if you go and make a garden for people in the space of a week. There you are, here's your garden. Will they love it any the less? They will embrace it with open arms when they've been looking at a sheet of concrete, probably because they're either too poor to have done anything about it, the funds weren't there, too busy looking after somebody to do anything about it, uh, incapacitated through no fault of their own, so they've not been able to do it, and you gift them with a garden, you start them off and they can then pick it up and, if not run with it, because they can't, but they can certainly look after it and they can understand the benefits of having one and, and the therapeutic qualities of a garden. And I don't see what's to knock there, apart from getting more people interested in it than, than otherwise. And if you're trying to make gardening an exclusive pastime, I am not your man. And I think you've said, you know, linking to that, I think you've said that one of the things that you look for most in a garden is is personality, which, mm. which I mean, obviously you're creating very personal gardens for people in a really short time in Love Your Garden. And obviously in your own garden, you've had longer to do that. But, you know, how do you, how do you get to that sense of personality? Because a lot of people listening to this will think, oh, okay, I've got a space, I've, I've planted some things out, I've maybe followed some planting plans, but... How do I make it mine? How do I make it my personality rather than copied from a, you know, copied from your ideas in a magazine? Well, 
work out what you like looking at. And if you've copied an idea from a magazine which actually don't like it very much, change it, move it until it appeals to you. And that's what personality is. Gardens that are run by organisations are lovely, but they, they, they lack that individual personality that you get at, you know, Highgrow, which is the Prince of Wales. I mean, he absolutely, his personality blossoms in that garden. You see what he likes. I mean, because it's very much, yes, he has help, but it's he's initiating it and, and participating to it. It's, it's his garden. Um, Christopher Lloyd's garden was, was, was his garden. Um, make yours your own. Yes, start off with other people's ideas. And when we're doing Love Your Garden, we're, as I say, gifting people with a garden which is done. But I've looked at them and trying to find out, try to find out what they like and what I think they would like. We leave it with them and then they adjust it. I don't expect them to preserve it in aspic the way I leave it. And that's the other thing about a garden. It is always work in progress. It's always moving. I've had great fun this year, not just tweaking a border, but completely clearing it and starting again. In fact, it was a row of conifers and I've taken the conifers out and planted Japanese maples and hostas. I go out every morning to look at that. And, it, and it's the end of the year. And I planted it in March. Uh, and, and that raw excitement comes as a result of having a complete makeover in a corner. And the word makeover has sort of become bad. That's mm. what gardening is. Gardening is doing a makeover of a piece of earth. And so to be sort of pompous and uh, I don't believe in makeovers, what else have you done then? You know, it might have been slightly slower. Um, and, and so if what you're criticising is speed, yes, okay, you're on a guiltiest charge, but God willing, all the stuff I plant will grow because it's been planted properly. <laughs> and, you you know, you've had the confidence, uh, and many people don't, to make big changes in your garden. You've taken things out. I mean, I can see from photographs five years ago, things are not there now. How do you judge when the right time, when it is the right time to make those changes in your garden? You know, people again will be thinking, ah, it's too daunting. Well, I go back to the mytherin. You know, it's, <laughs> it starts off as a little germ. Ooh, that's that's not too good. And over the weeks, months, maybe a year or two, you know, that isn't improving, is it? It's not getting any better. Um, I'll just adjust it. I'll take that bit out and that bit out. You don't think, oh, that'll be all right. It's a sort of temporary measure. And I've got one big bed I've got to remake this winter. Because it's just, it's. I always say to people, it's like when you furnish a room, you put an armchair there, an armchair there, coffee table in the middle and a sofa here. You know you can go back to that room in 20 years' time. It might be a bit dusty but they'll still be there and they'll still be the same size well if they were out in the garden the sofa would have grown this big the two armchairs might have shrunk a bit one would have lost an arm they don't look the same and all gardens i often think they're looking at their best just before they start to go over the hill um and you need to sometimes you can do it with a little bit of unpicking sometimes you really do need to do a wholesale let's just clear that and start again and it's daunting it's always daunting but bite the bullet chances are you won't remember what it looked like later on. Ah, brilliant, yes. So tell us about any regrets with the current garden. Anything that uh, you wish you'd have done differently and or would you just change it? I just changed it. I think in a way I've done it. I mean, I don't look at... If there is a regret... I do something about it. Um, and there's nothing that I've done which I thought, oh, oh not true. Uh, there's, um, there's a row of five Chinese dogwoods I planted to make a sort of walkway down a path. And they replace a row of five Magnolia Wilsonii, which perished. And the dogwoods are coming out this autumn as well. I tried and I failed with both of that lot because they were just, and I've watered them, trying to keep them going. But there comes a point where you think you've got to get on your own now, sunshine. They're not happy. And I, I don't like to see unhappy plants and that's difficult 
when you get to that stage because you are admitting defeat. You're admitting you got it wrong. They don't like it there, but sometimes the only way to find out if they will like it, if you've done all the other checks, if it's something like sun, put it in sun. But if you've done everything, you think, well, I think I might get away with it. Well, I didn't. So they're coming out this autumn. So odd regrets like that, but generally the layout of the garden I've been pleased with because I work a lot on, even in a small space, and this garden immediately around the house, I work on axes. I do, there's a wind from the room next to the kitchen which looks straight out at a big the only one of only two big trees that are in the garden when we came there's a yew tree and a, and a, um, a conker a chestnut tree was chestnut and it looks i found that the yew tree at the far end of the garden was bang in line with this window was, oh great so i did a path running towards it with a white wire bench at the end of the path underneath the yew it's the most uncomfortable thing to sit on but it's the most wonderful po- focal point it's absolutely on a line with this window and if you do things like that you know that is always going to work because you've got the line right and if you do these crossed vi- views and vistas even in a plot that's 20 feet by 40 feet it works it doesn't go wrong and then you can fiddle inside it you've got such a lovely space there what is it four acres but what mm. amongst all of that what what gives you the most pleasure it's funny i had penelope hobhouse uh this <laughs> i meet occasionally penelope hobhouse and and i, but I was reading her talking she was saying that the older she gets the, the simpler she likes it and i i thought and this was some years ago, and I've now realised I'm I'm getting older as well, because I agree. My I think my greatest pleasure is the wildflower meadow, which is the simplest, if you like. I sowed it by hand. We had uh, when we came here, we had two acres. Uh, it's about an acre of garden and about an acre of it was nettles and 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 just a mess really. And I then bought from the farmer next door two two more acres. Uh, to make a proper wildflower meadow. And I sewed it by hand with a bucket and a seed fiddle, which broke halfway through. Um, and I I watch it now. We've literally this week just cut it. And people say, oh, there's such a lot of work, wildflower meadows, aren't they? No, 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 this one is three days' work. We cut it, take it off. That's the most important thing, beginning of September. Um, and then it's sort of, and I mow rides through it all the time. Every week we, we mow the rides, and it's the same rides. And again, they are either on axes or, or windy, but mainly they're angry because it's nice to have wildflower meadow with goose feet like Hampton Court. You look, you stand on one spot, you look straight ahead and there's one path running straight to die. There's another one at an angle of about 45 degrees that way and 45 degrees left and right. And things like that please me. Um, and I sowed this, it must be getting on for 10 years ago now I sowed this. It starts with cowslips in March and April. And we then go on to marguerites, moon daisies, um, and then come the knapweeds and the scabious and the vetches. And then the marjoram comes out in August and the whole thing turns purple. And then the seeds fall, end of August, beginning of September, and then we cut it. And I just love, I like sunshine. I like woodland, and I've, I've worked above Barley Wood. We had about um, 35 acres of woodland, which I run as a nature reserve. And I like woodland, but I like being in the open, and I love a wildflower meadow. And we now have orchids popping up. And I got a bee orchid last year, which was wonderful. And that, I suppose, and looking out as I, I'm sitting at my desk, looking out over the wildlife pond that we dug, which is about... 
what would it be about 20 metres by 20 metres, something like 30 metres. It's a big pond with lilies, water lilies in the middle and a little rowing boat on it. And I just gaze at that and try and concentrate on writing <laughs> at the same time. So funnily enough, like Penelope Alpaz, like Penny Alpaz, I'm getting keener on the simpler things, really. And I'm looking at the garden now and thinking, is that all a bit messy? And it's interesting, as you get older, I noticed my mother-in-law and my mum, they were older than I am now, they start having a kind of life laundry. They start giving stuff away. They don't want things. They don't want stuff anymore. And it's almost, it sounds maudlin, it's not really. It's a kind of cleansing operation. It's, you know, I don't need this. And I'm wondering if my garden is going to become simpler. Because I was musing when we were away for a month on this border that runs right alongside one of these terraces around the house. I thought, do you know, it's, I've got Michaelmas stages in it now. There were alliums in it earlier in the edit. What if I just put something really simple in there just a mat of something and, and I thought oh hello the cleansing bit's coming early ah. then you know? <laughs> <laughs> do you think this is your last garden then I don't know um I'd, I'd like to think it well you never want to say I'm never going to make another garden because I thought that and then we got a little cottage on the Isle of Wight and I made a seaside garden there which has been delightful and that's over the last sort of six years so that's probably my, my, my last garden but I, um, I don't know is the answer you never know what's around the corner and if suddenly work dries up and I, I can't live here anymore I can't afford to live in, live here I, I may have to you know downsize the children have flown the nest now it's a, it's a nice house we don't rattle in it but I could live somewhere smaller but oh I do love walking out into my little field uh, amongst my wildflowers I don't know is the answer um, the um, ability I hope the ability but certainly the excitement of making new plot has never gone away and of course I get to do that with Love Your Garden I do it all the time so this is certainly not the last garden I'm going to make you know I've got more to make for that the last garden for me maybe and if it is I'm very happy because I can keep adjusting it I now know that I can do new things here without having to move somewhere else and I do like it here I think it's an amazing inspiration because there's so many elements to it it's always very scary when other people come around because I never know what... Because it is for me. I mean, it's, it's my garden. I may, I'm not making it show off. I'm making it to suit the house, going back to that genius of place, to suit me and my family's needs, but also to give me um, artistic pleasure if you like, um, aesthetic pleasure. I like beauty in a garden. We've actually made our veg patch bigger since we did that summer series called Grow Your Own at Home. Um, so we've now, we, we enjoyed, Alison filmed it because we were in lockdown. So it's just the two of us here. And our veg patch is tiny, three ra big raised beds. And I've now put another two in and we've made a bigger veg patch uh, and fruit patch, kitchen garden. And I'm excited about that. So um, I keep altering it. And that gives me the shot in the arm. But I... I it's it's very much where I want to be. And uh, apart from the, the veg kitchen garden, it's all about beauty. Um, and it is about beautifying that we're in the beauty business, gardeners. You know, we, we beautify the landscape, or I hope we do. And we're oft called in after the architects made a mess to sort of soften it a bit. And, this, and I love that combination of hard landscaping softened by plants. I long to make a garden on Love Your Garden or something like that, which is solely plants. There's not an ounce of hard landscaping, just to show that you can still achieve good line with plant material and not necessarily use stone or brick or steel. We haven't seen the last of the Titchmarsh touch. <laughs> 
Well, I hope not. I mean, mainly because I enjoy it. I mean, you you can never, you've got to treat every day as your last, not not from any kind of morbidity, but you've got to make the most of every day. There's been a lot of talk recently about happiness, about it is a choice to be happy. Well, in the words of, of Evelyn Waugh, up to a point, Lord Copper, I mean, there are those who are, have circumstances where they find it very difficult to be happy, and it's a bit fatuous and trite to say we can all choose to be happy but you can improve your level of happiness and you can do it with a garden and everybody has that opportunity to ameliorate their life to have a little patch of paradise even if it really is a pocket hanky and I've met enough people over the years who have the tiniest gardens but they're so intricate and so beautiful and have clearly given them so much pleasure and spiritual uplift Uh, that I've learnt and been reinforced in my belief in the value of gardens as the most important thing, certainly in my life. And I'd like to think that I might have encouraged a few other people to understand, realise and enjoy that as well. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. And for more gardening tips and inspiration, why not try our new magazine subscription offer for podcast listeners at buysubscriptions.com forward slash gwpod you'll also find our special offer in the podcast pages on gardenersworld.com where we also share more about today's themes so if you've enjoyed this episode please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app and we'll see you next time